Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Rachel Johns began writing as a broken-hearted teen seeking release from her misery, and it was an act that changed her life. She's now recognised as one of Australia's best-selling rural romance and life-lit authors. She's also highly productive, with two books out this year and another due in early 2021. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's binge reading episode, Rachel talks about romance for women with growing up, complicated lives, and why she dislikes her work being categorised as chick-lit. But before we get to Rachel, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Rachel's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Rachel. Hello there, Rachel, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Joy. It's fabulous to be here. (laughs) Now, you're talking from Perth, aren't you? I always quite like to give people a bit of a sense of the geography because there are very big distances between all of the people that I talk to. You're over the other side of Australia, which is way, way away from us. We think of the East Coast as being almost neighbours, but you're another, it's pretty well, I think it's five hours by plane across Australia, isn't it? Yeah, it's five hours by plane and then another couple of hours, isn't it, to you over there? So we're five hours in time difference at the moment. I love New Zealand though. So yeah, I'm in I'm in WA. I've got family in, in Queenstown in New Zealand. So we were gonna go there this year, but unfortunately, you know. Yeah, didn't work out. That's right. Yeah. So are you actually in a suburb of Perth or are you out in the country? Well, I was in the country until a couple of years ago. We spent the last eleven best part of eleven years in two different small rural communities in Cojanup and Gimaling, for anyone who does know any of those places. One was down south of Perth and the other one was in the wheat belt. But now we're back in Perth kind of on the outskirts in the Swan Valley. Because I don't think I could go back after living in small country towns. I don't think I could go back completely to suburbia or city living. So yeah, sort of best of both worlds hopefully at the moment. That's interesting because you are known for best-selling rural romance and I did wonder how much rural experience you'd had, but we'll get on to that. You started real writing, you say on your website, at the age of 17 as therapy for a broken heart. So that's amusing. I mean, I know a 17-year-old's broken heart can be as as painful as any age, but it's not exactly the sort of depth of life at that point. How did it all come about? Oh, yes, I completely agree with you. Like it felt like the end of the world at 17 when you break up with someone who's the love of your life. But now, you know, almost 25 years later, I can look back and kind of laugh, you know, at the experience. And I'm glad it happened because I think I would probably be on quite a different um, path if it hadn't. I'd always wanted to be a primary school teacher and I actually think I probably would have done that probably would have loved it and enjoyed it but yeah it's amazing how things turn out so what happened yeah I wasn't a big reader or writer at all in high school you know I did reasonably well in high school English but I didn't read books because the ones they wanted you to read I felt just were boring um sadly and also I was much more obsessed with 
boys or as you put it out one particular boy I was pretty much a stalker all through high school and I what's the word everyone in the school knew I was madly in love with this boy he did as well he used to run in the opposite direction when he saw me coming and it was you know quite embarrassing thank god there was no Facebook or social media because I shuddered to think what I would have put on there but um a miracle happened in the end of year or the beginning of year 12 and he asked me to the school ball I think he only did that because he knew that I would definitely say yes and you know as a 17 year old boy it's kind of daunting putting yourself out there but he also knew that nobody else would dare say yes because I would kill them and I probably would have so anyway, we, we went to the ball and we kind of started going out from there. And I, I use the term going out quite loosely because, as you said, we're 17, we're at school, we're 12, neither of us could drive, we lived quite far apart, so we didn't really see each other, you know, a lot of time outside of school. But I thought he was the love of my life, you know, we're going to get married, have babies, live happily ever after. I was obsessed with him. And then but one day towards the end of year 12, uh, he said something that I wasn't too happy about. I can't remember even what it was, but we had a bit of a disagreement and I said, you know what, I don't think this is working out. And he said, and I hoped he'd say, no, Rachel, you're the love of my life. I'm sorry, don't leave me. And he said, yeah, I think you're right. So <laughs> I, accidentally, I accidentally dumped the love of my life. Um, joke about that now because people say you can accidentally get pregnant, but, yes, you can accidentally dump someone as well, and I did it. And so then for some weird reason, as I said, because I'd never been a huge reader or writer, in the summer holidays between finishing year 12 and starting what I was supposed to start, primary school teaching, I decided to write this book. And I wrote, uh, I don't know if I can really call it a book because it was very, very bad. And it was the story of me and this boy and it was everything we'd ever said to each other right until the end. I had a good memory then, but I don't now. But everything was terribly boring because, you know, for four years he ran in the other direction. So it was a terrible, terrible book. Um, I wrote 80,000 words of absolute rubbish. But even then I knew you can't end a book by accidentally dumping someone. So what I did is I gave him a horrific disease in the book and I killed him off. And it was such good therapy for me. And I actually since then have met a number of writers and I find that half of them sort of have always wanted to write. You know, it's been this thing since when they were little, they just, you know, wanted to scribble stories and they wrote picture books and chapter books and, you know, they've always wanted to do it. And the other half of us seem to come to writing because we sort of use it as some sort of therapy at some stage, whether it's the death of a parent or breakup of marriage. A lot of people come through that. And so I came to therapy too, but I caught the bug. And I think, you know, you've spoken to many writers and I'm sure that many of them would have said it is like a bug. You know, once you start, whether you're successful or not, sometimes it's really hard to stop. And so I decided then and there that, wow, I love this whole playing God and being able to tell my characters what to do and my, my own universe and all these things. So I said to my mum, just I think I just turned 18 by then, you know what, I'm not going to be a primary school teacher. I'm going to be a famous author. And the credit to her, she didn't say, oh, my gosh, you crazy girl. She said, okay. And so I changed to a writing degree and that was the worst thing I ever did. But, yeah, it's a bit of a long story kind of after that. But that is the... <laughs> Like where exactly I started writing, yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic story and I'm amazed you got 80,000 words out of an adolescent oh. romance like that. I'm amazed now as well. Actually what's really funny is um, a lot of people often ask, you know, do I still know the, the boy or anything and I only vaguely do, you know, through Facebook. But my next book, which comes out in a couple of weeks, I actually dedicated it to him. <laughs> I didn't use his name, but I said something like, this one's for the boy who broke my heart at 17 and made, which led me to start writing. It's probably time I thanked you. <laughs> so we've come Oh, how gorgeous. 
That's a gorgeous story. Well, now you are recognised as a best-selling rural romance and women's fiction writer. And women's fiction in Australia and maybe in other places as well, but there's this category that you've got now called life lit, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that, but it's life lit that some of your books fit into. But it took you a while to break through to that level, didn't it? So after that initial decision to do your degree, how long was it before you got actually published by a publisher? Well, I think it was just about just under or just over 15 years from when I decided I'm going to write a book and be an author to when I actually got my first contract. And I think there's a number of reasons why it took so long. One, as you said earlier, when you're 17, you know, you don't have a lot of life experience or, you know, so there's not much interesting things that I had to write about really. Even being able to just come up with different ideas and hear other people's lived experiences and read, and that was one of the other things I was not a reader and you need to be a reader to be a writer. So I found reading at the same time as I found writing. I fell in love with um, one of my very first books that I really, really loved to read was Bridget Jones' Diaries. And I think the good thing about the problem was at uni they wanted you to write a Booker Prize winner or something that might win the Pulitzer or poetry. They were happy with poetry, but it was very much a literary um, degree that I was, you know, being, I was doing and that's what they wanted to write. Whereas I really wanted to write something like Bridget's own story. I wanted to write lighthearted, fun, entertaining fiction that still had depth and meaning, but, you know, that, that thing that people call a beach read or a train read or whatever. Um, but I didn't think that was what I should be writing. And so, you know, I think I was trying too hard to write something else. That was one of the reasons. So it was my, my age, I think, the fact that I wasn't a reader, the fact that I was trying to do what I thought I should be doing rather than what I loved, um, and so it took me, I did a uni degree um, in writing. I did an honours degree because I'm a slow learner and I didn't realise how terrible the degree I was doing was and that I wasn't learning anything. And then I actually did a dip ed and became a teacher because I actually needed a job to earn money. I met my husband during that this time too. I had a baby because I thought, great, I'll have a baby. It'll sleep all day. And that means I'll be able to write the books that I want to rather than go out to work and teach, unfortunately. <laughs> the baby was a terrible sleeper. And then I was so deprived from lack of sleep, I had two more. But anyway, <laughs> in, that, in that time, I was, you know, still wanting to write, really trying, but not, looking back, probably not trying because I wasn't really submitting books. I think I just submitted one book that I wrote and it got a form rejection and, you know, that probably scared me off. And I, I used to meet with my friend from uni every few weeks or months and we'd say, oh, it's so depressing that we're not ever going to get published, blah, blah, blah. And then one of us remembered an article we'd read at uni, not we weren't given this article at uni, but we happened to have seen it while we are at uni, about Mills and Boone books and how you can write and make an absolute packet writing for Mills and Boone. There was apparently a number of authors in New Zealand and Australia doing this. So we thought, great, why are we trying to write the Pulitzer Prize winner? I'll just write a romance novel. How hard can that be? Um, I'm here to tell you it's not any easier. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> And there was a big problem. I didn't had never read a Mills and Boone book and I had this sort of idea that a lot of people have that it's all just heaving bosoms and throbbing manhoods and total trash. And my mother-in-law used to read them at Christmas, I remember, and I think, oh, I can't believe she's reading that. I'm reading Bridget Jones' Diary, you know, so much more highbrow. I love books like Kathy Kelly, Monique McInerney, I should say. It wasn't just Bridget Jones. I was reading Marianne Keys, all those books I stored. But I thought, yeah, sure, I'm going to write Wilson Boone. And the good thing is one of the other reasons I think it took me so long is that when I decided to start writing at 17, the internet was very much a baby and you couldn't just Google everything the way we can today. Fast forward 
10 years, almost 10 years later when I decided to write a romance novel, the internet was wonderful and you could type how to write a romance novel and suddenly I had all this information at my fingertips and one big thing was the Romance Writers of Australia. Uh, There's also America, New Zealand um, versions of these things and so I joined and I started learning things that I'd never learnt at uni, things about the book should have conflict and the characters should have goals and there needs to be tension in the pages and a whole load of things. I also you know, found my tribe, I suppose, other writers who were really serious about what they wanted to do and loved what they do. So then it took me a couple more years from there doing contests, entering, you know, sets of meeting books, getting rejections, getting, you know, finally in contests. And finally, it's a bit of a long story, but to cut a long story short, finally I actually got a Mills and Boone Reject, I called it, published. It was one of the books I'd submitted to Mills and Boone, but they did, it didn't quite fit their line. And then digital publishing also sort of was starting around that time and I submitted it to a digital publisher and that book was called One Perfect Night and the digital publisher was part of Harlequin, Mills and Boone, which meant that I could go to a dinner in Australia with other Harlequin, Mills and Boone authors. And at the time, rural romance was also becoming a thing. I should say my last rejection from Mills and Boone, I was ready to give up. I sort of said to my friends, you know, I've, I've got three little kids. I never see my husband. I think I'm just going to give up and take up quilting, something else I wanted to do. Just, you know, because I could spend another 15 years at this stage, another 13, 15 years writing and writing and never getting anywhere. So I thought I'm going to give up. And then a couple of friends said to me, no, you live in a small rural community. They were writing friends who just recently got published with uh, Fiona Palmer, who I think you talked to recently, and then Catherine Hine. They'd recently got published with Rural Romance from Penguin and they said, don't give up, just write a rural romance. You live in a small town. And I felt a little bit more like a a fraud. I wasn't a farmer or a farmer's wife. We were there because my husband was running the supermarket. But I thought, you know what, I love small town living. I'd fallen in love with the dynamics of, you know, rural communities where everyone knows everything about everyone else, but, you know, that also really helped each other in emergency. And there was so much going on, so much more of a social life than I ever had in Perth. And so I decided I'm going to write about what I love about small towns and I wrote about the theatrical of a, uh, sorry, the revival of a theatrical society and I was waiting on the submissions for my one that did get published from Karina Press and I put out this other book as well. I got rejected by almost everyone in Australia but because I got that published Meals and Boone reject with Karina Press and got to go to this dinner, my friend was sitting next to the publisher of Harlequin Australia then and they didn't publish many books back then. They were basically a distribution office. And she goes, oh, my friend's written a rural romance. It's fabulous. She'd only read, read like a chapter. You should read it. You should publish it. And I think the publishers wanted her to shut up. And so she gave her the card and said, tell your friend to send it to me. And within a month she offered to buy that book and kind of the rest, as they say, is history. So it took me 15 years but then... In a couple of months, I had the digital published book and also a contract for a print book. So, yeah, it's a very long story. I tried to sell it fast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fabulous. And, and that rural romance thing is quite a phenomenon. You know, I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days when there just wasn't any sort of thing like that. I mean, I've probably been a member of Romance Writers New Zealand for nearly 20 years. And, wow. and at the beginning, there was hard. I don't remember any rural romance category when I very first joined, you know, New Zealand Romance Writers. No, there definitely wasn't. I mean, when I first joined Romance Writers Australia, it was 2006. And not only was there not so much rural romance, but there was not really any local publishing 
No, that's right. One of the first things you were told was don't set books in New Zealand. Yeah. And if you did, don't expect to be taken up. And even though there were a few romance writers even then who were setting them in New Zealand and getting them published, it was regarded as a big barrier. Sort of yeah, thing, and yeah. they weren't published, you know, they weren't known in Australia. You know, they might be published here on the Mills of yeah. shelves, but, yeah, they yeah. weren't yeah. known. I know that over the next few years, other publishers started coming to the conferences. And I think... Publishers in Australia particularly, like, realised, oh, people do want to read about, you know, local content and people are interested. And now there's just been an explosion in the last five, ten years, probably five, yeah. of, of locally published people in New Zealand and Australia and, you know, some of them are doing really well. So it's good that we are seeing support by Australian and New Zealand publishing. Yeah, I think it's terrific because actually the rural romance books, they do cover topics that aren't covered in the other areas of romance and, and they really are stuff that reflect women's lives. So this year you, you're really now highly productive. You've got two books out this year. One of them fits that rural romance category, something to talk about. And then you've got Flying the Nest, which you've mentioned, which is due out next month, which is more in that life lit area. So Let's talk about the rural romance first. You've actually published nine of these, I think, so far, have you? Is that, yep. is that nine? About, about right, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And something to talk about is the second in a series. So there was one in this previous sort of town setting before. Yep. Focuses on Tabitha, a dairy farmer who lost her arm with, her arm with an aggressive cancer. Now that... Even on the cover of the book, it's really terrific. The woman sitting on the book is kind of half turned away, so you can have that impression that she hasn't got one arm. But when you look at it just as a normal reader, you wouldn't conclude that. But as yeah. soon as you start to read the book, you realise that the picture on the cover really does convey a message. You mentioned that that was inspired, I think, by a friend that you knew who had a health challenge. I'm not quite sure if it was exactly the same sort of health challenge, but tell us how that came about. It was exactly the same. I pretty much stole her, her story, um, the age that she lost her arm, how she lost her arm, a locum, you know, not seeing the right, that there was cancer there and thinking it was just tennis elbow. I stole everything. My friend knows I did. So it's pretty much the only person probably I've completely based, you know, almost completely based a character on. So that's Tabitha from Something to Talk About, who is an amputee. And, yeah, she was inspired by a lady I worked with in the library in Kojanup, and she had only one and a half arms, so she called it her little arm. And she was just such an inspiring cat person. She could do everything that you and I could do, probably better. She could cover books in the library, you know, without having the bubbles that other people, you know, couldn't manage to do. She rode a motorbike. She was a volunteer ambulance officer. And she is an amazing quilter and knitter. And I remember actually... Well, when I was doing the edits for this book, because I, I wanted to portray, you know, obviously she's been affected by this, my character Tabitha, and it's, you know, internally it's made her doubt a few things about her life and various things. But at the same time, she's such a competent, independent, you know, really friendly, wonderful person. And I really wanted that to come across um, in the book. My editors said, you know what, you've, you, you're in danger of slipping into, I can't remember what she said, but almost like the, the superhero disabled character like sort of making it too un unrealistic and I got what she was saying but I was like but it's based on a real person and my friend can knit and this is important a because I had it in the previous book but she wasn't edited so I couldn't but and you know she did volunteer in the ambulance service so there's uh, I took on board what she said and I said okay let's make her not so much a fabulous you know she she 
tries to make a vegan lasagna and fails at that. You know, it's terrible. So I gave her some other things that she wasn't quite, but I really was wanted to keep the things that, you know, I knew an amputee could do if they put their mind to it because I wanted to show that, you know, a lot of it is uh, I want to celebrate, you know, disability in a way and to show that it doesn't necessarily have to stop people living the life they want to live, if that makes sense. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. all my rural romances and my other books, I, I, rec- I realised this recently, um, I've just had to start again a book that I'm writing that's due at the end of the year. I, I had 25,000 words and I just realised I woke up and I was like, no, it's not working and I need, I need to start again. And after thinking a little bit about why it wasn't working, I realised it was because all my rural romance books and my other ones, they have light and dark. There's there's fun and there's the romance and stuff, but there's also each of them have sort of a serious issue at their core, sometimes more than one, and I never sort of set out to do that. I didn't start thinking about the issue necessarily, um, but like there's Tabitha's arm, I've written about autism, of a little girl with Down syndrome, obviously grief, can't you know, wind farming, some other sort of issues that are specific to rural and I realised I need that because I need to feel like the book has meaning and depth for me and a connection and it's something important as well and I just didn't have that in the new book so yeah I think it's really important for me that there's you know there's some depth as well as the heart yeah 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 and Tabitha I mean we won't give anything away about the story but she has emotional hurt and damage and and brokenness from what went on around her illness as much as physical. So that helps to really drive the story. With Flying the Nest, which is the next one you've got out, I think it's just coming out a couple of weeks after we talk, and, and this podcast will probably come out pretty much at the time the book comes out. Ash doesn't realise that there's anything wrong with her marriage until her husband suggests very broadly, almost in the opening sentences of the book, that they try nest parenting, nest parenting. Well, I must admit, I'm a bit a bit old and I haven't even heard that term myself. So describe to people what nest parenting is for starters and why she would be so shocked by this idea. Okay, well, I hadn't um, heard of it a couple of years ago either and then I think I read an article online or something about a couple that was splitting up, separating, and they were working out the best situation for their children. And, you know, traditionally when a couple divorces or separates, often they go to live in two different places and the kids end up living, you know, some of the time with one parent and some of the time with the other parent. And, you know, that they're back and forth in all the time. Not really about to settle, I suppose, in either place. And so nest parenting, the idea with nest parenting is that instead of the kids moving back and forth, the kids stay in the family home and the parents come and go. So they might live in another place. Sometimes I've heard that they live in the same unit, you know, but then they take turns. So they're never actually living together, but they're sharing kind of two different places. And then other times they go and stay somewhere else. If you've got more money, that's a better solution, I think. And I remember thinking, in theory, this is great because the children, you know, they're not... They don't have to pack up their bags and their things every week. They they feel settled and, you know, it's not their fault that parents are splitting up. But so it's it's instead of uprooting them, the parents do that. And I thought, yeah, in theory that's great. But imagine sharing a house with, you know, kind of sharing a house with the person that you maybe can't stand to speak to even really anymore and you've got bit mega issues. I thought little things, you know, that would would start annoying you about whether or not they upheld the rules that you guys decided together for the contract. I just thought, yeah, in theory it sounds great, but I reckon in practice it might not be so fantastic. What happens when other partners become involved? Do they stay over there and you'll end up sharing? You know, it's all just 
seemed, it seemed very dramatic to me and conflict-ridden. So I decided I wanted yeah. to write about that a few years ago. And, yeah, that was really the first. There was that and one other little thing that was a spark of inspiration for this book, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, that one does fit into the life-lit category, I guess, doesn't it? Because it's – but tell us what how you describe life-lit yourself. Right, I'll just say that I think that one does fit into the life-lit category, but it's probably my most – Rural life lit, if that makes sense as well, because there is a, a, a small town that the heroine, uh, the main character, spends a lot of time in. Uh, she alternates between Perth and a, a fictional town of Ragged Point, which is a rural community, a coastal community. So it's it's got, yeah, it's probably my one that's the most, it's got a little bit in each camp, if that makes sense. But so life lit is, the, the term actually came out a few years ago. I think I may be attributed with actually coming up with it because I, which is wrong because it was my publicist at the time it was when my first women's fiction book Patterson Girls came out and the whole term women's fiction a lot of you know there's a lot of people that have problems with that I kind of I think there's a few issues with it other reasons I think other, well, otherwise I think it's good because it's like celebrating women and it's women writers writing for women and you know that talk about women's issues and we're bringing to the forefront on one hand that's great but the other thing, there's, there's a few problems with women's fiction. Uh, one is if I say to someone, like often people will go, oh, what do you do for a living? And I say I'm an author. The next question is always, oh, what do you write? If I say romance or even rural romance, immediately they know what I'm talking about. If I say women's fiction, they kind of give me a little bit of a blank look because it doesn't really tell you anything about what you're reading. You know, crime tells you what you're reading. Horror does. Fantasy does. Sci-fi. Romance. But women's fiction, it's like, well, what the hell is that, you know? And so I felt like, and, and it encapsulates a whole load of things, like often historical fiction comes in there, family sagas will come in there, women's fiction with romantic elements, more issue-based book club fiction sometimes comes in there, and they're quite different stories, probably even domestic noir sometimes. And so, you know, it's really, I thought it's been better to have sort of a term that described what I wrote, which was kind of contemporary life stories of like, yeah, women's issues, but... Yeah, that not all, not necessarily women because, you know, there's men's issues in my books too. But, yeah, just things that contemporary people are dealing with on an everyday basis type thing, if that makes sense. And my publishers, publishers at the time said, what about life lit? You know, we have chick lit, which a lot of people hate that term too. You know, there's so many different, you know, lits we have. What about life lit? It's just like life, general life fiction. And I've heard recently other terms like up lit, um, which is sort of slightly different to, to I guess, what I was think of as life lit and another reason I felt women's fiction is that there's a problem with the term women's fiction is there's no men's se- fiction section and maybe that's a good thing maybe it's as I said before celebrating women and you know but but it's also like in some ways the, the flip side of the coin is that the littles women's stuff it's like oh it's just women's stuff don't worry about that you know like and so and then, then the third reason I don't really love it is because I have plenty of male readers and I know all of my writing friends who write in this genre and even the rural romance genre, like the majority of readers are probably women, but there are a number of people who are not. I get emails quite frequently from men saying they've enjoyed my books. Sometimes it's the rural ones because I guess they I often like the rural aspect of them, but they also like the romance, they admit. And then I get a number of men reading the other ones. And a few years ago, one of my male readers was actually like attacked on Facebook because he had put up a post about, you know, reading this type of fiction and someone said, oh, why are you reading girls' books and stuff? And I just really think it's horrible that people judge, you know, anyone's reading. So that's kind of 
how Life Flip came about, but it's still sure. hard to explain what it actually is. <laughs> yeah. I noticed one of, one of your last year's Life Flip title, which was Just One Wish, a reviewer used this phrase, if you like your chiclet with a dash of intelligent social commentary. Now, that kind of almost grated on me. Like, you couldn't expect... You couldn't expect quotes chitlet with intelligent social commentary. What a surprise. And that's kind of a little bit, and also chitlet is very much urban, isn't it? It is the Bridget, Bridget Jones stuff. Yeah, yeah, and more. I think I, I always say chitlet kind of as a younger, you know, more the 20s, early 30s maybe at both yes. and not so much dealing with, you know, family life and later in life marital issues but more, you know, that whole dating and working out who you are type thing. Um, but I agree with you with that that quote. Like part of me was like, oh, that's, a, you know, a great quote. I'm really, you know, you know, it makes me sound, you know, good. But then another part of me was the same as you. I'm thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with chiclet. And most, most books I read, this is what really grates me on people's opinions about romance and chiclet, I suppose. You know, at the very bottom of the pecking order, people think, you know, and often people that haven't read these books at all or they secretly enjoy them but they don't think they should. And they like they think that chiclet and romance is just light and fluffy and it's not about anything important. But as I've discussed with you already, you know, my books, all the romance ones have deeper important issues at their heart. I mean, what's more important than love really, you know what I mean? But at the same time, there's not just love that they explore. And most books that I, I don't think I've read hardly any chiclet or romance that doesn't have more going on. So, yeah, that is that was that did great on me a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't mentioned it, but pretty well all your romances, or the, certainly the ones I've seen, they are looking at women who are really adults, they're grown-ups, they're mostly not meeting Mr Right first time round. They might have had an unsuccessful romance or um, they're divorced or... They're a little bit later, they're in their middle stage of life or in the stage past just very young, aren't they? Definitely, yeah. I think that's more, I mean, you know, I don't know, not more interesting because there's nothing more exciting than the first flush of love, I suppose. But I think, you know, in, in, in real life, you know, most of us don't get it right the first time and it's nice to sort of say that, you know, show encouraging to other people like my sister's 53 and she's, divorced and dating now and she's you know loving it I know other people who second time around are so much happier than they ever were first time around and so I think it can be you know once you've got baggage you know there's there's issues but it's also can be so much more fulfilling if that makes sense yes yeah moving away from the specific books to your wider career I think people would probably guess from what you've said already that that you probably would put perseverance up there as, as the key to your success. But what advice would you give to young writers starting out? Is there one thing you'd say really focus on? Yeah, definitely. If you really, really want it, don't give up because so much in this industry is luck and timing. You have to be ready for the luck and timing. Like my rural romance sold because that's what people were wanting at the time, but I had it there and I'd written it, you know, and I'd, been working on my craft for years. I know an author, a WA author, an English author, she lives half and half, Anna Jacobs often calls like it an apprenticeship that every writer leads, you know, needs an apprenticeship. We need, and that apprenticeship might be a year, it might be 15, like me, who knows. But, you know, I don't regret any of that time. 
spent learning and I'm still learning. And so I think one of the, so my big thing would be just don't give up if you really, really want it. The other thing is read lots. There's so many, so many little things I would say. Read lots. You can learn so much from reading. Um, it could be crippling because you think, wow, this person's so much better than me. Why am I even trying? But also remember when you're thinking like that, that this book that you're reading is fully edited and it's been through all the stages. So you can't compare it with your first draft. I have to remind myself that. But the other really big thing probably I'd say at the moment, this is not so much about craft or, you know, actual technique, is don't be in a rush, you know, because it's so much. I'm so glad that self-publishing wasn't an option when I was 17. Now, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing. I've got great friends who indie published and they've chosen to do it for one. Maybe it's their first book that they've decided to do it with. Maybe they've already been, you know, traditionally published for years and for one reason or another they've either been their hands in force or they've decided to go out their own. We're so lucky that there's that option now and you can do really well with that. But I think the, ten, the flip side of that is that some people, you know, they write one book, it gets rejected and they think, oh, well, that's not my book. You know, the publishers know what they're talking about. And, I'm, and it's so easy now to go just put your book out there. Well, I'm really glad that I didn't have that opportunity because otherwise I would have put some shock. I'm sure at 17 and 18 I would have published that book. Oh, my gosh, it would have been so terrible, not just embarrassing because emotionally, but terrible because of how badly it was written and you know so I think yeah just don't be in a hurry make sure that you're really proud of whatever you put out there and you know yeah there's so many little bits of advice I could probably give yeah do you do anything like writing workshops of that kind of advice you do I do sometimes if I'm asked I'll do I always feel um a bit iffy about giving writing workshops because I have no idea really how I write a book (laughs) like I I'm not, you know, uh, yeah, I'm not one of those really plotty type people that plan it all out beforehand. And often I think when I have too much of a plan or too much of an idea where it's going, that stops. That's one of the reasons why I just ditched this other book that I was writing because I think I knew too much and in theory it should have worked, but it just wasn't. Um, So it's very hard kind of sometimes to teach how I write because I'm not really sure how I do it myself. But I do, you know, try (laughs) if I'm asked. And I'm very happy, like, you know, to talk on panels and talk about the pro, like just the whole, you know, not necessarily to teach, but talk about how different everyone is and how you just really need to find your own own way and trust your process in the end. Yes. But beautiful yeah. things on my, because I'm constantly filled with doubt and think, oh, my gosh, all of this was a fluke and I can't do this again and it's horrible. So I've got a couple of two little post-it notes on my desk here and one says trust the magic because I think there is magic in writing. You know, so many times I've put something in a book and I haven't realised why I've put it there. In, in Mandrout, which is my second rural romance, I had, I, put, I had a heroine who's buying a country pub and she has two friends she's coming to show. One of them's pregnant and the other one's really, like, citified and loves, you know, shopping and magazines and all this stuff. And I just needed them to be different, so that's how I did it. No idea why. But that pregnant, that baby was born, the hero delivers the baby in the book, you know, and it's a big part of the whole story. And I didn't plan that at all. And so I think sometimes, and the more I write, though, the more if I do something like that, I think, well, why am I making a pregnant? That's ridiculous. And I'll try and pull back. So I have to remind myself, no, just that first draft is about getting everything down and trusting that maybe there's some magic working in your, you know, some your subconscious knows why you're putting things there before you do. And that's why I've got the other little sign is go with your gut because often I've, I question so much I start trying to think of another way of doing something. And I've learned to realise actually my original idea my original way is often the way that is most organic and I should have gone with it. 
but yeah. Yeah, that's great. Look, you were mentioning about reading and how at the beginning you weren't much of a reader, and this is the joys of binge reading. So we like to get an idea of what you're reading now and what you'd like to recommend to others. You had a lot of catching up to do. So how has your reading gone over the last 15 years or so? So much catching up to do, and sadly I think I will never catch up. You know, I, I, I'm, I binge buy books so much. I, I buy way more books than I'll ever be able to read. And sadly, I'm quite a slow reader. And I think that's probably because it took me so long to get there. You know, I wasn't, I was devouring lots of books in high school. I think that would have increased my pace. So like, there's a lot of classics. I had to read things at uni. So that helped a little bit, but there's certain things that, you know, I feel like I should have read that I haven't. One of them is the Thornbird. So I recently read that for my online book club. So long. <laughs> but now I just read I read pretty widely, obviously. I don't read a lot of rural romance anymore because it's a, it's a long con- I, I find there's quite there's so much out there and it's one of, it's like romance. It, there's only certain so many stories and I don't want to kind of not that I want I'm worried about stealing my like my me copying anyone's voice. I just feel sometimes the rural's too close. So I, I read I'd rather read like contemporary you know, romance set in America or UK or something like that if I'm reading that. Um, I read, obviously, in the life lit genre, I guess. I love, I still love Marianne Keyes and Monica McInerney, you know, Leanne Moriarty, obviously. And also I do read a bit of crime because I really enjoy that. And the one good thing about reading crime is I'm not reading every sentence comparing it to my writing and thinking, oh, my gosh, it's so much better or, golly, this is, why is this being published? Or, and I'm also, you know, yeah, I'm just not analysing how it's all fitting together. Whereas, you know, it's very hard to switch off now when I read a book. I'm constantly sort of picking it apart, even if I don't want to be. So, yeah, I read quite widely. Um, probably my most favourite book I've read lately is Anxious People by Frederick Backman. He's a Swedish author. He wrote The Man Called Ove or Ove you know, and just love his stuff. He's so clever and, yeah, so he's my favourite author at the moment, I think. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Look, we are starting to run out of time. So circling around, what's next for you as a writer and what projects have you got on over the next 12 months or so? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had to go on pace again a little bit. I've had a couple of years where I only wrote one book and now this, this year's been two and next year it's supposed to be two as well. So we're, you know, that's that's making things fun. I'm currently writing a rural romance. It's a fifth in my Bunyip Bay series, which is always supposed to only be three books, but people liked it. And so, you know, we're going back for more and it's a Christmas romance kind of. And so, yeah, that's, and my issue that I'm sort of exploring there is rural men's mental health um, and suicide. So that's quite dark, but I'm going to throw in a Christmas pantomime in the town doing that. So I'm hoping that that, you know, works out. But I'm very early days because that start again. And next year I've got a book coming out in May, which I'm super excited about. It's called How to Mend a Broken Heart. And it's set in New Orleans in America, which I am obsessed with that place. I love, I've been there three times now and three, no, two maybe, maybe two. I think I'm just dreaming that I've been there three. <laughs> I love it so much and I definitely want to go back again. It's just such an eclectic place with so much different variety of culture and music and art and then history and ghosts and it's just amazing. Um, but they also, the, the good thing about that book is that a few, for many, many years um, people have been asking me for a sequel to The Art of Keeping Secrets, which I wrote a few years ago, and I didn't really you know, know how I was going to do that, but I've managed to do that set in New Orleans. So I'm very, very excited about that book. And that 
is that is life lit with strong romantic elements. It is the story of one of my characters from Art of Keeping Secrets and her daughter and sort of them both having to move on after, you know, disappointments kind of thing. So, and, But it's set in New Orleans. It's so much fun. <laughs> is that the first one set outside of Australia? First one almost completely set outside Australia in my full-length books. I have written a couple of cowboy novellas and I did actually write another book set in New Orleans with, Three, which is a series with three other authors, Megan Crane, Macy Yates and Jackie Ashenden from New Zealand. And so that was that was just a one-off and it was a biker book, totally out of my comfort zone. It's only digital. But, yeah, this one is my first sort of traditionally mainstream published book that is set completely somewhere else. And I did have a bit of pullback from my publishers. I think they're quite happy for me to just write Australian settings, but I stood my ground. <laughs> That's great. Look, I'm sure that you like to hear from your readers. Obviously, you do hear from your readers. Where can they reach you online? Um, definitely, I do. I love it. Often these emails or messages come just at the right moment. I'm on Facebook and Instagram under Rachel John's author, I think both. And, and then I have a website, racheljohns.com. It's actually getting a revamp at the moment. So it's my old one if you look at the moment. But by the time this podcast comes out, hopefully it'll be my new one. Um, And I'm very excited about that. That's fabulous, Rachel. Look, thanks so much for your time. It's been fantastic. The Christmas book you mentioned, so that will be Christmas next year, won't it? Yes. Hopefully. Fingers crossed I can finish this one without having to start again. (laughs) (laughs) All the very best and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.